morning what we're going to do is once again continue in this uh, uh, epistle of Second Peter, and we're coming to a close in this epistle. We've been in it for some time, and there have been a number of things that Peter has been laying out before us, and we might say this, what Peter has been doing in this epistle is he has been fulfilling the commission that Jesus Christ gave to him in John 21. You remember there was Peter. Having just denied the Lord Jesus Christ, there was Peter with all the weight of guilt upon him. There was Peter with all the shame of having failed Jesus Christ, now being graciously recommissioned by Jesus Christ to do the work of pastoral ministry. He calls him to be a pastor to the church, and he says to Peter those three times, Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. And so again, Peter now has been commissioned anew by the Lord Jesus Christ. What great long-suffering Jesus Christ showed to Peter on that day, did he not? And you see this idea, this element of the long-suffering of our God, the long-suffering of Jesus Christ, is something that we're going to see even come on the pages of the Scripture here today. We're going to be reminded of this, that Jesus Christ is long-suffering, not only that sinners might come to salvation, but Jesus Christ is long-suffering, even even so that his church might be complete in their sanctification. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that in all of your struggles for holiness, that God is patient with you? Aren't you glad that in all of your desires for sanctification, the Lord is working with you and not against you? And we're going to see these things as we open up this passage of Scripture. And Peter, in performing this, what we might say, this pastoral function, you've noted, you've noted with me what he's done. In chapter 1, there he was laying out the, the foundation of the Christian life. You remember how he did that? He emphasized and he stressed the call of God. And he emphasized and he stressed that those, stressed that those who have obtained like precious faith are now a part of that great body of believers. He laid out what the Christian life looks like. It is a life of continual growth, adding to your faith virtue and to your your virtue knowledge and to your knowledge goodness, this development of the life of the Christian. He goes on to say then, you remember how that all this is based upon that unshakable word of God, that more sure word of testimony, excuse me, that more sure word of prophecy that you and I do well to take heed to as a light that shines in a dark place. Peter lays out then the Christian life and he shows to it as it's all bound up and all based upon the word of God. That's what a pastor does. This is what this man who's been commissioned by Christ does. He points us over and over again to the word of God. Then you remember again as a pastor, what's he doing in chapter 2? He's warning about the threats to the church, the false teachers who creep in unawares. These men who are marked by their sensuality, these men who are marked by their greed, these men who are marked by their arrogance, who want to do nothing other than just use the people of God to serve their own ends. Peter warns us of them. And then in chapter 3, you remember he's, he's warning, of, warning us of another danger that faces the church. And again, that's the, the danger of the scoffers. And you remember what I encouraged or what I exhorted you to a few weeks ago. Remember what we said about these scoffers. Do not let these men laugh you out of heaven. Do not let their jokes bring you to shame. You stand on the word of God. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see today is essentially this. That the Christian is that man or that woman, that person, who in a world of shifting opinions lives by certain convictions. This is what we see here in verse 14. Notice again what Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for these things. You see, the Christian is looking for these things. What things is he talking about? He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. There were the scoffers mocking at this. There were the scoffers laughing at this. There were the scoffers saying, where is the promise of his coming? But there's the Christian saying, no, I'm looking for these things. I'm certain that Jesus Christ is coming. We might put it this way. Peter said in chapter 1, I didn't tell you about a fable. 
I didn't tell you about a fable when I told you of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ the first time. And I'm, th I'm not telling you about a myth when I'm telling you he's coming the second time. Neither fables nor myths, but again, divinely attested truths from the word of God. That's what you hold on to. And that becomes the basis of your convictions. And so what I want you to see, as I said before, that the Christian is that person who in a world of shifting opinions lives by certain convictions. And I want to lay some of these convictions out for you. First and foremost, what we see by way of this conviction is the conviction of our Lord's return. This has been Peter's emphasis all the way through this, through this, uh, through this third chapter of 2 Peter. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ shall most certainly return. We saw this, you remember, even when we uh, took a look uh, uh, earlier in the chapter, when Peter says this in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There were the scoffers saying, where's the promise of his coming? There was Peter saying, wait a minute, you don't understand. What you think is delay is not delay. Rather, it's a display of God's long-suffering. God is not slack concerning his promise. You remember how when we looked at that word slack, it's that uh, we kind of use it in a colloquial way when we talk about people who don't pull their weight when they work. We refer to them as slackers. They're not doing the work. And the scoffers are saying about God, he's a slacker. God's no slacker. It's the, again, it's, he, he's, he's not delaying anything. He is displaying something. What's he displaying? He's displaying his long-suffering. Oh, aren't you glad that the Lord is long-suffering towards us? You remember how we treated that passage of Scripture? There was Peter, again, as I believe in this passage of Scripture. He's speaking to the elect of God. He's speaking to his people. God is long-suffering toward us. But then we saw how it expanded out, don't we? Not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. Oh, that important, that important uh, evangelical grace of, of repentance. And I hope and I pray that each and every one of you know what that is. I hope and I pray you know what it is to repent of sin. Yes, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you must. But you also know, again, that sister, that complementary evangelical grace of repentance, where the soul sees itself before God, where the soul sees its lack before God. But the soul sees not only that, it sees the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And there's where we see repentance and faith, again, as sister graces. Repentance causes me to see myself for what I am before God. Faith causes me to see Jesus Christ as he's offered to me in the gospel. Oh, if you had this experience, I hope and pray that each and every one of us has. And so again, this, this whole emphasis that Peter is saying, man, while the scoffers scoff, notice again what he says here in, in, in verse 10, but the day of the Lord shall come. Let the scoffers scoff. Let the mockers mock. Peter's saying, I don't, it doesn't matter because the day of the Lord shall come. It's a conviction. Come down here to verse 14. Again, Peter's saying the same thing. Or actually, we can just go to, to verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since these things will happen, he asked the question last week, you remember, what manner of persons ought we to be? He asked that great question, what manner of persons ought we to be? And you remember how Peter answers that question. What manner of persons ought we to be? We ought to be holy people. We ought to be people who are hastening the re return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be hopeful people expecting the return of our dear Savior. And so again, this brings us down now to our 14th verse. And once again, Peter says this, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot or blameless. Well, as I said before, what I want to develop for you today is this great thought that the Christian is that person who lives by certain convictions in a world of shifting opinions. And one of these convictions is the certainty of our Lord's return.
Now, in light of the certainty of the Lord's return, Peter sets before us two primary responses to this conviction, or two primary, uh, how should I say, outworkings of this conviction. In other words, what will these convictions look like? Well, the convictions that Peter lays out here, or the conviction that Peter lays out here, is going to have two effects in the life of the Christian. The first effect is going to be the effect of action. And let me ask you a question. What conviction is worth its salt or its weight if it does not lead to action? You see, convictions lead to actions, do they not? We don't stand passively by when something that we have convictions about is being attacked. And so again, Peter's first uh, kind of uh, uh, delineation of of what we should be doing is that of action. But the second thing that we're going to see that Peter sets before us is not only action, but also attitude. And the attitude that he's going to present before us is nothing other than the attitude of God himself. Verse 15, look again again what verse 15 says. And again, and count the patience of our Lord is salvation. And what we're going to see here is this, that when we as Christians come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we live by these convictions, these convictions are not just short spurts of energy. But rather, these convictions are undergirded by the reality that our long-suffering God, our long-suffering Savior, is waiting to bring as many as He can to, to, to draw in, I should put it this way, to draw in His church to Himself. That's what we're seeing here. And so that kind of an attitude undergirds all of our activity. So we don't become exhausted after three years of trying to live a holy life. We don't become exhausted after spending uh, six months trying to plead with a sinner to come to Christ. We don't become exhausted after finding ourselves struggling with sin after six weeks of trying to give this thing up. No, we understand that God is in this for the long haul. By His grace, so are we. And so sanctification continues every day of our lives, doesn't it? The battle continues every day of our lives. I had a very encouraging conversation with a good friend of mine. He was telling me how, how, how there are elements in his life that he seems to be getting victory in. And I said, brother, I'm very, very happy for you, but understand this. Satan's not a static target. Just because one sin we begin to get victory, it doesn't mean that he's not going to come in on the side. He moves, he shifts, doesn't he? He's very alive. We don't shadow box in this thing, do we? We're in a real fight. And so again, what we see, what we see and what we understand is that we have to set our minds for the long haul, even as long as the long suffering of God. Of course, it will never be as long as the long suffering of God, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say here. So again, The Christian is that individual who lives by certain convictions in an age of shifting opinions. And what I want to show you then first then is the activity that we are engaged in as we wait for our Lord's return. The activity that we are engaged in as we wait for the Lord's return. Look again here at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Therefore, since you are waiting for these things. Well, I've already touched upon this. These things, once again, are the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Note how Peter starts this out. In chapter 1, he says again, we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we spoke of, of you concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ or the first, his first coming. Peter says, look, you didn't believe a fable. And now Peter is saying, you're not believing a myth when you believe in a certain return. That's the conviction. And this idea of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ looms large throughout all of Scripture. 
There's a sense in which we could say this, as the resurrection, in a sense, completes the death of Christ, and as the ascension completes the resurrection, so the return completes the ascension. There's a sense in which the return of Jesus Christ in glory is the capstone of the incarnation. Christ would, Christ became man not only to die for your sins and my sins, but also to reign in glory, to have his glory displayed throughout all of his creation. And so again, this idea of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is large, it's huge. Again, all the way through the scripture, we see this over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament, we see this, this emphasis on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember how well, a few weeks ago we closed out with that passage of scripture uh, from Revelation at, at the end of the book where the, where, where the Apostle John says, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The desire of the church is that Jesus Christ would return. And so again, this whole thing isn't just something, an, el an element of systematic theology that academics can deal with. This is something that is a conviction of every one of the people of God. Brothers and sisters, is it a conviction of you this morning? Are you convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory? You see, you must. Because this is one of the great motivations that God gives to holiness. You remember how we talked about that last week, don't you? You remember how we made this emphasis over and over again throughout the Word of God. The return of Jesus Christ lays the, fr lays the framework for the Christian's life of holiness. And so again, these are the convictions uh, that, the, that, that the Christian has. Well, this conviction of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ was so fundamental to the entire teaching of the Word of God. Uh, many of you know, most of you know, I've mentioned this, many, many of you know that the church codified this, this reality of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the early creeds, uh, over and over again, you find this fact of Jesus Christ coming again to judge the world. Jesus Christ coming in glory to judge the quick and the dead. So this idea, as I said before, isn't just a piece of theological information that we can either do or do away with. It is one of the essential elements of the Christian faith that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. Well, that's the conviction. And what's, our, what's to be our action in light of that? Well, basically three things, and I'll give them to you real, very quickly, and then we'll, we'll come back and revisit each of them. Our, the three actions that we are to take, as we see it in this passage of Scripture, is that, number one, we are to be diligent in our pursuit of sanctification. Be diligent to be found without spot or, or, or blemish. The second thing that we see here is that we are to, I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, forgive me there for a minute. The first, thing we are to be, the first thing that we are to do in our action is to be directed by our conviction of the Lord's return. The second thing is to be diligent in the pursuit of our sanctification. And the third thing is to, be, is to desire to be found of, uh, in peace at his coming. Well, let's take a look now at the second one. And the second one is this, diligent in our pursuit of sanctification. Well, again, this is, a, this is another theme that we've already been developing. Take a look just back at verse 11, uh, and we considered this uh, last week. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? As I said before, in light of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are to be diligent in our pursuit of holiness. That's very interesting because there are a couple of words here that are worth uh, taking a look at and worth repeating. Number one, here is Peter's emphasis on diligence. This is a word that he likes to weave into his writings over and over again. In this second epistle, we've seen this word diligence at least three times. Take your Bibles and just go back to chapter 1 of 2 Peter. And notice what he says here in verse 5. Now the King James reads, give diligence. But in, in the ESV it reads as follows. For this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort. It's the word diligence. 
Look at verse 10, the same, the same idea. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So the idea of diligence is one of the fundamental kind of building blocks of the Christian life. What is diligence? Well, the word diligence means essentially this, to be eagerly involved in something. Diligence means to be highly motivated and to give our energies over to something. And what we see is essentially this, that the Christian life is not a life of passivity. But the Christian life is a life of active engagement of all that God has placed within us by way of gifts and talents and all that he has given us by way of opportunity, using them for the glory of God. Advancing in personal holiness, huge. Making use of gifts for the glory of God, absolutely vital. And so again, the Christian life is not a life, as I said before, just waiting to get to heaven so that when we get to heaven, we can sit around on clouds playing harps. You know that's not the picture of the Christian life, nor the picture of heaven. The, Christian of the, the picture of the Christian life is a life of activity given over in service to God. Oh, to come to the end of our days and say, to be able to say before God and to say to ourselves, whatever else I've done, whatever else I've been able to do, I've been able in some small way to serve this great and gracious God. Don't you want to die that way? Don't you want to be able to, don't you want people to be able to say of you like Balaam said of the Israelites, let me die the death of the righteous. Why? Because the righteous man, there he was in his life serving God. And so again, the life of the Christian is a life of activity, diligent activity. Again, a repeated theme. Make every effort. Be prompt. Be earnest. Be diligent. Do, to, the word again means to do something with intense effort and motivation. This is the life that you and I are called to. So in light of the conviction, in light of our conviction of the return of Jesus Christ, what are we going to do? We're going to be diligent in the pursuit of holiness and sanctification. And again, the idea of holiness and sanctification is contained in the words that Peter says here again in verse 14. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Now again, this is kind of an interesting thing. Because what Peter is doing, once again, he's, he's weaving in thoughts that he's already placed in the epistle. And, and this idea of spot and blemish should be somewhat familiar to those of us who have worked through this second epistle. It should remind us of what Peter says about the false teachers. You remember what he said about the false teachers there in, in verse 13 of, of 2 Peter chapter 2? He says, This suffering wrong is the wage for, for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. Listen to what he says. They are blots and blemishes. You see, Peter says to be make sure that you are not found in the same way that false teachers will be found on that awful day. Those false teachers who were in it for nothing but themselves. What will that day be like? You remember we looked at that passage of scripture where, where the Apostle Paul speaks about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that he will be admired in all of his saints. In all of his awesome holiness, he will be admired in all of his saints. But for false teachers, what will that day be like? These men are spots and blemishes in the church. And, our Lord, and, and Peter is saying, don't you be like them. Don't you be those who are marked by these spots and blemishes. Let there be a moral sanctity and a, and, a, and, and a spiritual holiness about you. But not only do we see these words being referred to as false teachers, it's kind of interesting that in contrast to the false teachers, Peter uses these words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Not in 2 Peter, but in 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter says this, 
But, and he goes on in verse 18, he, he, he goes on to say that we are redeemed uh, not by corruptible things, but by incorruptible things, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, but with the precious blood of Christ, listen to what he says, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. There were the false teachers. They are blots and blemishes. There's the Lord Jesus Christ, a lamb that was presented without blot or, or blemish. And what's Peter saying? He's saying this, in your diligent pursuit of holiness, aim to be like Christ. In your diligent pursuit of holiness, aim and pray that the Spirit of God conforms you to the image of Christ. In your diligent pursuit of holiness, set before you these two great contrasts and shun that of the, uh, of the false teacher and embrace that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so again, in this passage of Scripture, because of the conviction of, the, uh, of our Lord's second coming, we are not only, again, uh, being uh, directed by certain things, but we are, again, diligent in our pursuit of sanctification. But Peter goes on to say another thing. And again, it's all kind of woven together here in this 14th verse. He says this once again, look again in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him. Diligent to be found by him. You know, this idea of being found by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every man, every woman, every girl, every, every boy, every girl, we will, we will all be found by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the question is, how will we be found? How will we be found? Will we be found without spot and blemish? Will we be found in righteousness? Will we be found diligent in holiness? A couple of things, again, that we want to see here. When Peter said that you may be found of him in peace, a couple of ways to understand this. Again, you know that the great blessing of the gospel is peace with God. You understand this, don't you? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the great gift that Christ bestows upon his people. Peace with God. Why, are, why do so many people live a life of agitation and anxiety and everything else? Because fundamentally, they, don't, they are not experiencing peace with God. But God grants that peace, you see. God gives that peace freely through Jesus Christ. It's one of those things that God freely gives with us when he gives us his son. Romans 8.32 how, how shall not he who spared not his own son also freely with him give us all things? And so God, if I can say it this way, he bequeaths to his people peace. What a wonderful thing, isn't it? And it's interesting to, to think not only this idea of peace as a gift of the gospel, but also to think of the idea that through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and some of these ideas some of you are familiar with. You know that Christ gives to, to the church, Christ gives to his people that great donation of righteousness, we might say. That righteousness now becomes theirs by way of imputation. And so while I myself am, 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 am failing and have these, these blemishes and these faults, the righteousness of Christ, Christ is mine. But I don't think that that's necessarily what Peter is talking about here. I don't think he's talking about what we sometimes call our positional righteousness before God. I think Peter is talking about that real personal element of your holiness in the day that is running away from the standards and from the morals of God. So that you and I, rather than going along with the world, you and I are doing our best to be faithful to Christ in a fallen world. And so when Peter says, again, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish, what is he saying? He's saying, again, make sure that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, you will know that experience of peace of having not being ashamed, of not being ashamed that is coming. This is what, this is what John warns us, of, doesn't he? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John says this, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Confident. The question, 
If the Lord Jesus Christ comes tonight, what difference will there be in your life today? The question, if the Lord Jesus Christ comes before this sermon is over, what difference will there be in your life today? And you see, I hope and I pray that, 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 that the life of, of, of faith has been so much a part of who and what you are that really you'd have to think, okay, what, what, what changes would I have to make? I hope the, the life of sanctification is so much a part and parcel of who and what you are. I hope the life of, of desire to, to use everything you have for the service of God is so much a part and parcel of who you are. You'd have to rethink. And so again, the idea is this. When Peter speaks about being found of him in peace, I think it was really what he's referring to is this. There is coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ shall come like a thief in the night. How will he find you and me? May he find us in peace. And the way we will be found in peace is by being diligent to be found without spot or blemish. And so again, this, the, these three things then kind of set before us uh, the action that we are engaged or to be engaged in. And again, those, those three actions, as, we, as, as, I, as I laid them out for you, again, we are to be directed by our conviction. Uh, number two, we are to be diligent in our pursuit of sanctification. And then thirdly, we are to, we are to desire uh, that we might be found uh, of him in peace. Well, that was our action. Well, what about our attitude? What is the attitude that's to undergird our action? And let me just say a word about that. You know how important uh, our attitude is uh, in, regard, in relationship to our actions, do you not? Uh, you know that sometimes the only way you can take up an unpleasant task is, the, is by way of the attitude that you bring to it. Sometimes you know that, uh, that the road before you is very long and very difficult, very arduous. And you think to yourself, oh, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm just not up for this. I remember I was talking to a fellow that I used to work with who, uh, who, who uh, um, ran in a number of the uh, Boston Marathons. As some of you may be marathoners, I, I don't know. But I, I just remember saying to him, I says, I says like, how do you even like, mentally get ready for that? How do, you, how do you mentally get it in your mind? I'm going to be running for 26 miles. And again, the, the physical aspect of it, tough enough. But like mentally, how do you stay in the game? I, that, I, did, I did some work for a guy. He was a... He was a 50-mile marathon. And I was like, how do you do that? And uh, he says, well, he says, I just think that when I'm getting ready, he says, I'm just going to be, I, I, I figure it like a day of work because I'm going to be running for about eight hours. So stop and think. An attitude preceded an action. And I think Peter is saying something of the same thing here. Our attitude is vital, but our attitude is laid out for us. And our attitude is kind of directed not by our own personal motivations. Our attitude is directed by the very mindset of God himself. Look at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now there's a couple things that are interesting here. Number one, again, the whole idea of the attitude that we come with here. But number two, what's interesting is this. When, when Peter says, and count... The, 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 and count the long-suffering of the Lord is, is salvation. The word here for count is, is, is one of those interesting words, and what it means essentially is this. It's, it means to, to, to take it into your consideration, to, to, to estimate it along these lines, to, to evaluate it. This word is something technically of a, of a parallel word to that word that we use for imputation. I don't know if, I've, if, I'm, if I'm getting too technical here or not, but there's that idea of imputation, which means to count or consider. Well, this word that you use here, it's not the same word, but it's, it's something of a synonym. And the idea is this, look, count it. Count before you take the action. This idea that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. That's the goal of it. As I said before, the Lord is not delaying, he's displaying. He's not delaying his return, he's displaying long-suffering. And that should undergird our actions because as we are trying to live lives of personal holiness, you know what that means? 
It doesn't become in kind of a uh, in kind of a destructive way so self-focused that we don't have any concern to those around us. No, this life of holiness is a life where not only are we concerned about the, 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 the destiny of our own souls, we're concerned about the destiny of other souls, are we not? And if the Lord's purpose in his timing of, the, uh, of his return is salvation, how ought we to be about the message of the gospel? How should we be proclaiming the gospel? Yes, we're walking in the way that God laid out for us. But as we're walking in the way that God laid out for us, we're calling as many people to come in this way with us. You see, the, the whole purpose of God here is his long-suffering. And what an admirable attribute this is of our, in our God. Over and over again, we see uh, this idea of the, of the, uh, of the, of the beauty of, the, um, of, 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 our, of our God's long-suffering. But it's interesting here that even before we discuss the, the, how admirable this attribute is, I want you to stop and think once again about how we are to engage this idea of our Lord's return as far as an attitude goes. And I think we can consider three things. Number one, we are not to engage the idea of our Lord's return the way the scoffers do. Where's the promise of his coming? Oh, you know, he's been, we, we've been hearing that for 2,000 years. I mean, you don't think it's time now. You don't, you don't think finally is now the time to get this thing going. And so again, and what Peter is saying, look, don't misunderstand this. Don't mock the grace that God is offering you. Have you ever said to one of your friends who, who are mocking these things, don't mock the grace that one day you're going to need. You're going to need this grace that I'm telling you about. Don't mock it. And so again, we can't respond to, 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 to the, our Lord's return the way the mockers do. Neither can we respond to our Lord's return and the, and the, and the seeming delay uh, the way the wicked servants in the parable do. Luke chapter 12, verses 45 and 46. But and if that servant say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming and shall begin to beat and the, the men servants and the maidens and to eat and drink and to be drunken. And the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him. And in an hour when he is not aware and will cut him asunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. You see, this is why Peter says, make every effort to be found in peace. When the Christian is living a life, again, to be free of the spots and blemishes, he never has to worry about what this wicked servant will find one day. But the third way that we're not to engage this seeming delay between our Lord's ascension and his return is the way that we see it by way of the foolish virgins in the parable. Again, Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 3 and 4. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. And then in verse 13 of, of uh, Matthew 25, Watch the, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. What are we seeing here? Three attitudes that we are not to engage as we wait for the coming of our Lord. We're not to mock this delay. We're not to live in a way that is sinful, in a way that is offensive, in a way that will bring the judgment of God. Neither are we to live foolishly as though that day will never come. But how are we to live in light of that day? Well, as I said before, understand that this long-suffering of God is all about the salvation, your salvation, my salvation, and the salvation of our friends. Over and over again, long-suffering is brought together with the idea of God's salvation. We saw it in verse 9, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, word, not willing that any should perish. We see it in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Stop and think of that, friends. 
We want to press repentance on those that we come and talk with. And sometimes we want to repress, we want to press repentance on them in the most severe terms. We want to kind of fancy ourselves as an Old Testament prophet, turn or burn. And here we see the Apostle Paul saying that it's the goodness of God that leads sinners to repentance. And I ask you the question. Consider the goodness of God to you that brought you to, to repentance. Consider the mercy that he showed you. Consider the awareness you had of what your sins should have brought upon you, but what they did not bring upon you because of the grace of God. It was the goodness of God leading you to salvation. And so what I say to you is this. Make much of the goodness of God when you preach the gospel. Well, don't forget about some of the sterner elements of his character. We're going to get to that here shortly. But make sure you press and understand the goodness of God here. Make sure you set before sinners a, a, a Savior who is willing to receive them. You see the goodness of God. And again, even Paul looks at his own life and he says again, uh, even the, the type of a sinner he was, but, but he sees the, the long-suffering of God. And what does he say? Titus, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1.16, How be it for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth a pattern of long-suffering, excuse me, for a pattern of them which shall hereafter believe. Show forth all, all, all long-suffering as a pattern. You know what Paul was before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. There he was, the great enemy of the church. There he was, that man who would come into this place of worship and, and rip the place apart and, dra and drag us out before, before the magistrates. And again, cause us to blaspheme and cause us again to, in front of the authorities to be put to death. This very man God was patient with. That very man God was long-suffering. And you see what God did through this man. Oh, the long-suffering of God. You see, there he was over and over again with this great display of this wonderful attribute of his long-suffering. Well, you see, this attribute of God's long-suffering, can I say it this way, <clears throat> is an attribute that God himself delights in. God delights in his long-suffering. Why do I say that? Well, if you go to the first time in the King James, anyway, where the, where the word long-suffering is used, is found in Exodus uh, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. A wonderful passage of Scripture. And you know that passage of Scripture. Moses asked God, excuse <clears throat> me, to show him something of his glory. And God said, the Lord says to Moses, he can't show him his glory, but he will show something of him. And what does he do? He reveals to Moses his name and his attributes. Did you ever consider that? Listen to this passage of scripture in Exodus 34, 4, verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, <clears throat> will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and fourth generation. This passage of scripture, Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther called this passage of scripture uh, God's own sermon on his name. God's sermon on his name. God preached that day. And what did he preach? He preached his long suffering. It's a wonderful thing to see. As a matter of fact, I think what's amazing about this passage of scripture <clears throat> is that those attributes whereby God's mercy and tenderness and kindness are seen are the, are the attributes that God sets out in front. These attributes, once again, long-suffering, patient, full of mercy, goodness, and kindness, these are the things that God delights in. But it's an interesting thing, isn't it? And it's something that we have to embrace when we talk about this long-suffering. That the long-suffering of God never means that he turns a blind eye towards sin. The long-suffering of God never means that. 
And even in this passage of Scripture, we are brought to have to deal with what we will have to call some of the sterner elements of God's attributes in this passage of Scripture. Did you notice what we see here in verses uh, in, in verse uh, 7, where the Lord says this, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. And so again, what we're seeing here is essentially this. God is making known his attributes of mercy rather than his attributes of might. This is amazing. Because when we think of God, rightly so, we think of him in all of his stupendous glory and majesty and might. He is the God who is, who, is, who is other than what we are. He is the God who is transcendent. He is the God who is great. He is a great God overall. But when God makes himself known, he does it in these very tender ways. He makes known his attributes of mercy, but he also brings some of the sterner elements of his character. And why is this? And I would say the following. But in order that sinful man not take the mercy of God for granted, he reveals through his, attribute, his attributes of justice to show that God is not to be dismissed lightly, but to be feared with a holy reverence. Why does God bring in these sterner elements? Because he knows the nature of man. The nature of man is to scoff at the things of God. Fools make a mock of sin, the scriptures tell us. You know, again, we see when we stop and think of this idea of the Lord's long suffering, one of the things that we have to be aware of and we have to remember is that the Lord's long suffering doesn't mean that he does not observe or see sin. What do the scriptures say? The Lord is angry with the wicked every day. That scripture is true. That scripture has to be considered. But the idea of God's long-suffering is this. Though God is angry with the sinner every day, his long-suffering is waiting for that same sinner to come to salvation. You see, again, the, the blending of these attributes, the, the beautiful harmony of the attributes, all working for the salvation of the sinner. And so there is God to be feared, not to be taken lightly. The psalmist cries out and he says this in Psalm 86, verse 15. But thou, O Lord, art a, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, plenteous in mercy and truth. Do you know this God? You see, is this God your God? Have you responded to him in a way that is in keeping with the call of the gospel? And so God in his long-suffering. Well, one, just think, one more thing about the long-suffering of God that I want to point out to you here, and it's essentially this, that this long-suffering of God is that which, again, brought you and me to salvation. That long-suffering of God is, is that which is, is patient with you and me. Can I, can I say this now? God is long-suffering with me when I'm not making the best use of my time in preparation for my sermons. Hope that that doesn't happen too often, but sometimes it does. Now I'm going to return the favor. God is long-suffering with you when you're sitting there not paying attention to the word of God being preached. God is long-suffering to us in working out holiness and sanctification. You see, God desires you to be more and more conformed to the image of his Son. And he will do everything by way of his energy of the Spirit of God. He will do everything by way of his patience. He will do everything by way of his mercy to make you and me more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And this long-suffering then, Christian brothers and sisters, this long-suffering is now to mark every one of us in our interaction one with another. Listen to the writing of Scripture. 
Peter, uh, Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the location wherewith you are called. How do you walk worthy of your, of your calling? Listen to what he says in verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, this long-suffering of God is not only uh, an, an, an attitude that, or excuse me, is not only an attribute that, that undergirds all of our understanding in the long haul of sanctification. It's an attribute that ought to be displayed within the image bearers that you and I are. Made in the image of God by birth. Recreated in the image of God through redemption. Now showing something of this long-suffering character. So how do we apply a passage of scripture like this? Well, I think the call to holiness is straightforward, is it not? Endeavor. Be zealous. Understand the Christian life is a life of activity. That the Christian life is a life of persistence. That the Christian life aims for the long haul. That the Christian life is that, again, that the Christian says within his or her soul that I will, by the grace of God, persist in this way. And also understand that as you are persisting in the way of holiness, you have a call to sinners to come in. You call sinners everywhere because God's purpose for you is not only that you be found in Him in peace, but God's purpose for you is that you bring others into the same saving relationship. Oh, the long-suffering of God, the mercy of God. My friends, I don't know the spiritual state of all of you here, but how can you turn your back on a God like this? How can you turn a deaf ear to to, to this God who calls you and who, who appeals to you by way of his goodness? Or will you come to faith in Jesus Christ this morning? You say, well, how do I come to faith in Jesus Christ? Will you receive the work that he offered for you on the cross? You say before God, yes, I understand that I'm a sinner. And, and, if, and, if, I were to be to, and if I were to be exposed for all my sins, I, I, I would shrink in embarrassment. And how, if I would shrink in embarrassment before men and women, how will I stand before a holy God, the Father? I believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, I believe that from the promise you've given me in your word, I believe that if I believe in him, that I'll be saved. I'll be cleansed from my sin. Oh, my friends, that's salvation. May we each know it this day.